book of James chapter 1 as we continue looking at the book of James together. If you don't have a Bible, uh, why not? No, uh, there's one in the chair below in front of you. Feel free to use it and read along with us. James chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 21 this morning. James writes, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives himself, his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Question for you. What does the Bible call a person who knows what is right to do but doesn't do it? Let me ask you, a fool. I wanted to ask it a second time, but Mark was a little overly anxious this morning. He's, I keep telling Mark, please switch to decaf. The whole congregation would appreciate it. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from there. Um, a fool. The Bible calls a person a fool. A fool is one who knows what is right and doesn't do it. He knows what is right but doesn't do it. That's why the psalmist writes, the fool uh, says in his heart, there is no God. Another question I have for you. If you were arrested on your way home from church today, some, some of you are nervous, okay. If you were arrested on your way home from church today for being a Christian, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law, physical, hard evidence to convict you in a court of law that your actions indicate that you are a Christian. You see, many of us are deceiving ourselves by believing that head knowledge alone is sufficient for our living out of our Christian faith. James here makes it clear that not only must we be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word of God. The Word will have its perfect work in you, not only when you know it, but then when you act upon it. The Old Testament is replete with verses that indicate to us that knowledge alone isn't sufficient, but that knowledge applied is considered wisdom. We as Christians need to act upon what we know to be true from God's Word. And to help us along... James now writes to these Christians who were once Jewish, who became Christian and then were displaced amongst the Gentile world 
either due to persecution or because they hadn't returned from the Babylonian captivity years and years earlier. For one reason or another, these Jewish Christians find themselves um, uh, spread abroad the Gentile world, and now they're living out their Christian faith, but in doing so, they are reaping persecution. They are being persecuted for their Christian faith. And many of them may feel that the way to avoid any type of persecution is to not overtly live out my Christian faith, but subvertly, secretly. But James says no. That true Christians will live what they say they believe. Or putting it this way, Do we really believe what we say we believe if we do not act upon that belief? Those questions are questions that we have to wrestle with personally and individually. We may say that we believe in God, but does our life reflect that? Would there be enough evidence to convict us for being a Christian in a court of law? To help us along, James writes concerning the Word of God by correlating it with two very common illustrations. The word first being a, like a seed, and secondly, the word of God being like a mirror in the life of an individual. Now, when I talk about biblical correlation, what do I mean by that? It's important that we understand that all New Testament theology is based upon Old Testament foundation. Though we're under a new covenant in Christ, the new covenant that supersedes the covenant of Moses, let us understand that the writers of the New Testament pull from the Old Testament and more specifically pull from the teachings of Jesus to communicate theology to their recipients. So the image of a seed we find in the teachings of Jesus throughout the gospel. The Gospels, I should say. And the aspect of a mirror is also found in Old and New Testament writings. And James capitalizes upon that and brings forward two illustrations to help us understand when we as Christians read the Word of God, what we can expect the Word of God to do within our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us at our new birth being born again. I've often encouraged Christians, especially nowadays, that prayer and reading the Word on a daily basis is no longer optional for spiritual health. It's a necessity. We must be in the Word of God personally, reading it for ourselves, understanding what God has for us in and through His Word, and allowing that Word to permeate our heart and to work its way out into our actions. Many, when I encourage them to read on a daily basis, they don't understand fully the benefit of that. They may see the Bible as just some other piece of literature like all the other books that have been written throughout history. But the Bible's unique because initially it was inspired by God through the writers. And as a recipient As we read the Word of God, we uniquely have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us that takes the Word of God 
and germinates it within our life to bring about the changes that God desires to bring about in our life. It's an incredible aspect of the Christian faith. So the first thing that we must do, if we are going to be not only hearers, but doers of the Word of God, is we must prepare our heart properly. This is where the illustration of a seed comes into play. And we see this here in verses 21 and 22. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted, there is the agricultural influence of what he is saying, word, which is able to save your soul. But he says, now be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. One who hears the word of God only and does not act upon it is deceiving themselves, thinking that they are getting the full benefit of the word of God. James says, not so. It's only when we put the word of God into application and action do we truly benefit from it. So let us not deceive ourselves thinking that head knowledge alone is sufficient. Being able to articulate complex theological ideas isn't sufficient. It's when we allow the Word of God to penetrate our heart, change our heart, and live according to the prescribed manner that the Word of God gives us. That's when the full effect of the Word of God takes place in our lives. But there's two things we need to do before we get there. Number one, he says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Now, I know some of you here in the church are just gifted with a green thumb, right? I mean, you could make plastic plants grow. You are just one of those unique, wonderful people. I am not, by far. I walk past plants and they seem to wilt and die. That's why we have plastic plants here and they don't look so good. (laughs) But some of you have this unique gift. And anyone who is truly into plants understands that before you even begin to consider planting the seed, you must first deal with the soil in which you plant it. And the very first thing that anyone would do, especially if you're doing outside landscaping, and if you do, God bless you, I'll pray for you. I live in a condo for a reason. I wave at the guy going by, riding the lawnmower. I wave at Juan. I'm not being racist. His name is Juan. (laughs) Hey, Juan, how you doing? Uh, And, uh, you know, again, it looks just immaculate after they're finished. It's wonderful. That's not me. I cut my dad's grass years after even I got married because my dad said that was the purpose for adopting me in the first place. (laughs) I was like, gee, thanks, Dad. But the very first thing you must do before you begin to plant is weed. Weed. And and again, it's one of those things where you just ask yourself, why am I spending my time doing this? But it's necessary. If you're going to have a healthy 
garden, if you're going to have a lovely landscape, you need to weed first. That's the depiction that he gives us here. We must weed our hearts first. Dealing with the sin that we know is there. Taking it before the Lord and confessing it. Laying aside, removing it. Dealing with it as God would have us to deal with. Not shoving it into a closet. And I know many of you, maybe like myself, when I was a little kid, my parents said you had to clean your room before you went out and played. Did anybody else have that? I did. I was very grateful for my closet and underneath my bed. But God doesn't want us to hide sin in those places. He wants us to deal with them openly. So the very first thing that He asks us to do is to lay aside our sin and to deal with it. The second thing that we have to do then after dealing with that sin in our life is break up the fallow ground, the hardened ground of our hearts in anticipation of planting the seed the Word of God within it. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 20-24, he said this, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and in holiness. As one wrote, he said, James saw the human heart as a garden. If left to itself, the soil will produce only weeds. He urges us to pull out the weeds and prepare the soil for the implanted word of God. The phrase... uh, Here, where he talks about lay aside all filthiness, gives a picture of a garden overgrown with weeds that cannot be controlled. It is foolish to try to receive God's word into an unprepared heart. So how do we do that? Three steps. Number one, we confess our sins. As John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That verse that John gives us is to believers. In the context of 1 John, it is clear that he's writing to the brethren. So number one, we must confess sin. Number two, we must break up the fallow ground of our hearts. As Jeremiah 4.3 states, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, your hardness. That's what he's saying. Break up the hardness of your heart and do not sow among thorns. And of course, after we deal with the weeds, after we break up the ground, then we must plant the word of God. Knowing as as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As one summed it up, he summed it up this way, Pastor Chuck Swindoll. Filthiness in life plugs our hearing. Wickedness slows our response time. Pride keeps us from exposing our true selves to the light of the Word. 
But humility means submitting to whatever the word has to tell us, ready to put off the thoughts and deeds of the old lifestyle in favor of attitudes and actions of the new life in Christ. And as James then goes on, after we lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, he then says, now receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. When we read the word of God as Christians, we must first and foremost consider its impact upon ourselves. Let me say that again. When we read the word of God daily, privately, personally. We must read it and consider the impact on ourselves first and foremost. It's easy to be reading through a passage of the Bible and say, oh, does that describe that person at church? I think the Holy Spirit has given me this to send to them. So I'll do what any good Christian will do. I'll text it to them, block my number so they don't know who it is, so they think it's the Holy Spirit, you know. It's easy to lay these things around others' necks. It's much harder to look at ourselves objectively and to say, no, that speaks to me. But that's what he's saying here, this term meekness. It means a willingness, a quality of not being overly impressed by the sense of one's self-importance, but being gentle, humble, courtesy, considerate. These terms display the idea of meekness. And then allow the Word of God to be implanted. The soil is prepared, it's been weeded, it's been broken up. Now we plant the Word of God in our life as we would plant a seed into the ground. And from that point is when the natural occurrence takes place. Oh yeah, I must water it, maybe put a little fertilizer. All I can do is tend to the soil that the seed is planted in. That is my heart. But I cannot cause the growth to take place. I cannot will it any faster, right? I can't do anything. That's where the natural growth as a Christian takes place. And we're all growing in Christ. All of us are works in progress. That's why we must be gracious to one another, loving, compassionate, forgiving to one another. Because we're all works in progress and we are all at different stages within that work. Allowing the seed to be implanted in us is a permanent plant within us to allow it to grow. But we must be considerate of the soil. We must be attentive to the soil in which it is planted. Now, biblical correlation would tell us that this undoubtedly is pulling from the parable of the sower of the seed that Jesus gave. Where the emphasis upon that parable was the condition of one's heart to the reception of the seed, which is the word of God, that was given. And as you know the parable, and you can read it for yourself, it fell on four different types of soil. One rejected it completely because the soil was too hard. The other two seemed to receive it generally. But then when the cares of life came upon them, they bailed on it. When the thorns began to choke it out, when the persecutions came, they bailed on it. 
But one of the four began to germinate and to bring forth fruit, demonstrating that it was uh, accurately planted and tended and it came forth as fruit, which is the ultimate desired response. So when we prepare our hearts by weeding it, breaking it up, and planting the seed of the Word of God in it, we tend to the soil by a continuous observation of the soil to make sure that it's still healthy and able to produce that germination of the Word of God. But ultimately, what we are looking for is found in verse 22 and 23. But be doers of the Word, that's the fruit, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Now this moves us to the second type of illustration that James gives us. Comparing the word of God to a mirror. A mirror. Now, I bet that every one of you has a mirror in your house. I will probably go further to say all of you have several mirrors in your house. And I'll go one step farther to say that probably all of you, well, maybe except Mark, looked in the mirror before you left for church. See, he knew I was going to get him back. (laughs) And he's one of my biggest supporters. We all looked in the mirror before we left, and the purpose of looking in that mirror was to correct anything that was out of place. You know, waking up with the bedhead that I do every morning is very difficult. I, you know, seeing, you know, hairs five and six out of place, taking time to correct them before leaving the house. But that is the purpose. This purpose of being the Word of God, being a mirror, that we may look into it, that we first and foremost may be examined. Now, in the Old Testament and New Testament, there are other references and correlations between the Word of God and a mirror. And if we take all three of them, which we will in just a moment, we will see a three-dimensional aspect of the impact of the Word of God upon the individual's life. The first of the impact is examination. Examination. And we find that here in the book of James. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word of God and not a doer, he's like a man, notice what he says here, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Your Bible should have a semicolon because then he goes on to explain. For he observes himself, now again, this is one who's a hearer and not a doer, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he looks into, but if he, I'm sorry, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in all that he does. So the individual who's a hearer alone is like one who simply glances into a mirror, doesn't take any time to personally reflect upon what they see, move away from it, and quickly forget what they have seen. Now, 
It's, you know, all of us spend time in the mirror for different reasons. And as I get older, I find that, you know, I can look there and after I deal with one thing, I find three more things that I need to deal with before I go on in life. That's the purpose of it. But one who's a hearer only doesn't take time and merely glances at themselves and they don't allow the word to reveal in themselves what is truly there. And therefore they don't deal with it. Secondly, they forget what they see. They dismiss it for one reason or another. They just walk away from it. So the examination doesn't have its full effect. And thirdly, They fail to apply it. And if we hold a position, we must act upon it. Meaning if we see something that's there and needs to be corrected, we should correct it, not dismiss it. For to do so, we fail to apply it, then do we really, really believe it? As Warren Worsby wrote, he said, If we are to use God's mirror profitably, then we must gaze into it carefully and with serious intent. No quick glances will do. We must examine our hearts and lives in the light of God's Word. This requires time, attention, and sincere devotion. Five minutes with God each day will never accomplish a deep spiritual, spiritual examination. Now notice with me that he says very clearly in verse 25, but... He who looks into the perfect law of liberty. That was a designated term for the new covenant. The law of Moses guided one from outside influence. Here are the rules. You follow the rules. If you do, you get blessed. If you don't, you get cursed. But the new law of liberty operates on the basis of freedom. Freedom. This was the freedom that was talked about by David in Psalm 119.45. He says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Meaning that the word of God in the new covenant, as I allow its examination upon me, will free me from the bondages of sin that I find myself within. But it's only one who hears and does. Now, I think for our time this morning, we need to take a quick look at the other two aspects of this reflective surface in correlation with the Word of God. The next one that I want to draw to your attention, if the first step of this reflection is examination, where we see ourselves as we truly are, then the next step of that process must be restoration. Warren Worsby brings this out, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant, but I have to give him credit for it. In the process of restoration, he brings our attention to Exodus chapter 38, verse 8. He talks about one of the items that is found and was described by God, architected by God, and was implemented by Moses to be placed within what was known as the tabernacle. It was a portable version of the temple. And it was the bronze laver where one could wash themselves before entering into the holy place. Now, if you were to walk into the tabernacle, you'd come to the the brazen altar where the sacrifice would be made. And the priest would offer the sacrifice there. 
and then proceed, but before entering into the holy place of the tabernacle, a designation, a spot designated as the holy place, the next item he would come to, the next thing would be the bronze laver. And this is where he would wash his hands and his feet. Now it's interesting because when Moses began to construct it, he asked in verse 8 of 38, he made a laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The bowl itself was made out of a reflective substance. And the purpose of it was that even though he was covered, you know, kofar by the sacrifice, the priest, his steps from there to the Holy of Holies, there was still sin in his life, wasn't there? Because it only covered. So he had to wash himself ceremonially. And when he did, as he stood over the levir, guess what he saw in the reflection? Himself. Himself. In the New Testament covenant, Jesus made it abundantly clear that the Word is the water that washes us clean. In John 15, 3, he says, you are already clean. That is, uh, through the sacrifice of the gospel. The new life has been given, which I have spoken to you. But, he says something more in John 13, 1 through 11, that we'll look at in just a moment. Then he, Paul said the exact same thing. In Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. This is the husband concerning his wife with the washing of water by the word of God. Now, what's going on here? What is this washing of water by the word of God? What does this all mean? Well, we must direct our attention then to John 13, 1 through 11. If you turn there in your Bibles, John 13, 1 through 11. Again, this is biblical correlation, taking us back into the Gospels. Now remember, the priest was covered at the brazen altar through the sacrifice, but then was still required as he moves from the altar to the Holy of Holies to wash himself in the bronze laver. Now, Jesus capitalizes on this and let us remember jesus is of course ministering to his disciples who are jewish individuals james is writing to jewish individuals who have become christian this these premises would have been familiar to them they would have understood the correlation here at this point but notice what jesus says here john 13 verses 1 through 11 now before the feast of passover When Jesus knew his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid his Uh, aside his garments, took his towels and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet 
and to wipe them with a towel which he had girded, which he was girded with. Then he came to Simon Peter, who I can identify, he had the gift of foot and mouth. And Peter said to him, Lord, why are you washing my feet? Shouldn't be. Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and Jesus and my head. Wash all of me if I can't have part of you. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs no only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So what was happening here? They were clean because they believed the gospel. They saw who Jesus was. But as they walked through the course of this world, their feet got dirty, physically, literally. And it was customary to wash their feet as an individual came into a person's home. It was a sign of um, courtesy. It was a sign of uh, submission and being a servant to them. It was a sign of compassion because their feet had got dirty as they walked through this world. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, even though you are already clean, as you walk through this world, you will get dirty. Wouldn't it be wonderful after we all got saved if we didn't sin anymore? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, right? We're still a work in progress. But Jesus is saying we don't have to take a bath all over again. We just need to clean our hands Cleanse your hands, you filthy sinners. I think that's later on in James, very interesting. And our feet. And that's what was happening here. As Christians, the new life will be tainted by the sins of this world. Sins, you know, we don't want to commit, like Paul says, those things I want to do, I don't do, and those things I don't want to do, I do perfectly. But it's going to happen. The Word of God restores us It brings us back to that original state. It brings to our attention as we grow in the knowledge of it what God considers sin. Initially, we may be ignorant to those things, but as we grow and continue on, they become clear to us that God would not have us partake in these things. So the Word of God not only examines us, but restores us. Because again, we are being washed by the water of the Word of God. Now that's only the first two. The last is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. And this is where it comes to full fruition. The Word of God will examine us, number one. It will restore us, number two. And number three, it will transform us from the inside out. When the Bible talks about transformation, it's talking about the process of metamorphosis. As we change from the inside out, as a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, we change from the inside out. And the image that we then work our way into uh, from the inside out is conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. The Word of God does that for us also. 
Paul made a very interesting statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I know some of this is a little deeper than what we normally get into, but it's important. I want you to know the value of getting into the Word of God each and every day. Each and every day. For examination, restoration, and transformation. After the Lord examines us, He wants to change us so that we will grow in grace and not commit the sins again. Too many Christians confess their sins and claim forgiveness, but they never grow in their spiritual maturity to conquer self and sin. But Paul made this interesting comparison to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Read it on yourself. But verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what is he saying here? Well, in the context, he talked about that moment when Moses came down from Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, excuse me, pardon me, and he had behold, the, uh, he had behold God and his face reflected that, but it was diminishing. It was fading. So he veiled it so people couldn't see how temporary that personal experience was. So he he veiled himself. He wouldn't let people see him because he knew that the covenant established through the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant, only had a temporal impact upon the individual. Paul now says, That in and through the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we can behold the glory of God. Indicated by the moment the temple was rent from top to bottom, I should say the curtain within it, was torn at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, meaning the pathway into that holy of holies was made available to each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. And so the altar, the bronze altar, the brazen altar wasn't needed anymore. All sacrifices had been fulfilled in and through the person of Christ. The bronze lavera was gone. We didn't need that because we had the washing of the Word of God. And we could enter into the Holy of Holies, come boldly into the throne room of God to find grace and help in our time of need. And so what Paul is saying here, is that the Word of God contains the glory of God. The Word of God is what we can look into to behold the glory of God. For John called Jesus what? In the first chapter of John's Gospel, he called Jesus the Word of God. Jesus was the perfect representation of God the Father. And that revelation is given to us in the Word of God. And in the new covenant, this is what God has given us to behold the glory of God. We don't have to ask God, can we see your glory? God doesn't have to put us in the side of a mountain and cover us with his hands. We have the word of God that transforms us from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. That allows us to be those new creations in Christ that God deemed us when we became born again. The Word of God examines, it restores, and it transforms us into the image of God. Warren Worsby wrote when he said, When the child of God looks into the Word of God, the glass, the mirror, he sees the Son of God, 
And he is transformed by the Spirit of God to share in the glory of God. The word change in the Greek gives us our English word metamorphosis. A change on the outside that comes from within. When an ugly worm turns into a beautiful butterfly, this is a metamorphosis. When a believer spends time looking into the word of God and seeing Christ, he is transformed. The glory on the inside is revealed on the outside. This is what Paul meant when he said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is that happening? Through the word of God, of course, that you may prove what is good, that is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. James concludes in verses 26 and 27 by letting us know how we can truly know that we are doers of God's word. Using the comparison to a seed, using the comparison to a mirror, he then says in verse 26, if anyone of you thinks that he is religious. Now the word religious in the Greek is, it means, you know, godliness, piety, righteousness, acting out what one says they believe. As one wrote, he said concerning the grammar here, in the number of languages, the concept of living a godly life may be best expressed as to live as God would have one to live, or to live like one should who believes in God, to always do what God requires of them. In a number of languages, there is no specific term equivalent to religion. But one may always speak of this phrase of culture by some phrase such as how to act towards God or what does the mean to placate the spirit or more specifically, and this is interesting, the word religion there can also be substituted by the English word worship. Very interesting. If you say you are truly a worshiper of Jesus Christ and that you are following God, There should be a direct correlation between what you say you believe and what you do. And number one indicator is if anyone among you thinks he's religious, now think about it, he's asking you to self-examine, be objective, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useful. Useful. Useless. (laughs) Sorry, it's been a long week. Useless. Why does he say that? Now, we're going to talk about the tongue later in the book of James. So it's going to be important that we segue into it properly. But why? Why does James spend so much on what one says? What's the biblical correlation? Jesus, again, gives us the answer. What proceeds from the mouth derives and starts in the heart. That's what Jesus said. To know what's in a person's heart, all you have to do is listen to them speak. It's not what goes in that defiles, it's what comes out that defiles. So the speech of an individual tells us where the heart of the individual is. But in verse 24, I'm sorry, 27, pure and undefiled religion or worship before God and the Father is this 
to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, meaning that we go to the weakest and the most vulnerable of society. We show them love and compassion. We display a selflessness in our Christian faith. We look to bless others. And number three, and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Three things. Our speech, our service, and our separation. Our speech, our service, and our separation. This is how we may know that we are truly doers of God's Word. He uses a term there that Jewish people would have been very familiar with, unspotted. It means that there was no defect, that the world hasn't impacted us. I am growing ever so concerned that in our current culture, as things become more difficult for us as Christians, that we are trying to avoid those difficulties by becoming more like the world. That we conform ourselves to the image of the world so we are acceptable to the world. Remember, Jesus was the perfect image of God. He never compromised in that way. He never became like the world to reach the world. He was perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and he loved perfectly, and they hated him for it. They rejected him. They persecuted him, and they eventually crucified him. We cannot avoid the persecution. Paul makes it abundantly clear throughout the Bible. And I was gone for a few days this week, and I take some time to go through a couple books of the Bible. I was going through First and Second Thessalonians by myself with the Lord. And he, Paul kept reiterating, walk worthy of what God has done for you. Walk worthy. Be worthy of it. Well, how is that worthiness displayed? Do you know Paul goes on to explain how it is? When we're willing to suffer for Christ's namesake. Where we, where we believe what we say we believe, we act upon it, and we allow the repercussions to come upon us from those actions. Now, the Bible says if they persecuted, persecute you for righteousness' sake, so be it. Know that you are living faithfully unto God. But as one pastor affectionately put it, if they persecute you for being a jerk, that's on you. That's on you. But let us know that James made it abundantly clear that to know that we are doers of the Word of God, we must allow the Word of God, its perfect work, within us. I want to close with the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, notice what he says. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man, one who knows what is right and does not do it, who builds his house on sand, and the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The only way we are going to be secure in an insecure world is if we stand on the rock which is Christ. He equates that not only to hearing the Word of God, but doing the Word of God. 
And notice that in Jesus' saying here that both the doer and the one who does not do experience the same storms of life, don't we? Storms that come from every direction. But the the results are completely different. One stands, the other fall, and great is its fall. So let us not be only hearers of the word of God. Let us also be doers of the word of God.